0: That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hopefully this is the last time you hear this ad because with Chime Checking Account, features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts. Or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com goals24. That's chime.com goals24. Chime feels like progress.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome. The History of the Great War, episode one hundred and twenty-three. A big thank you goes out this week to Tom and Shane for choosing to support this podcast on Patreon, over at Patreon.com/slash History of the Great War. By supporting the podcast, they have helped make all of this possible. So thank you. This episode begins our series of episodes on the Russian Revolution, which means we should probably start with a discussion about what these episodes will actually cover. There will only be six episodes on this topic, and to be honest, I will not be taking a super deep dive into the intricacies of revolutionary politics in Petrograd during 1917. We will cover the high points, and you will get the full story, but I think a truly deep dive into this topic will occupy a lengthy podcast all by itself. We will be keeping our conversations at least somewhat adjacent to the war, which means we will spend roughly a third of our time discussing the 1917 Summer Offensive and the Russian exit from the war later in the year. We will also be discussing not just the events of 1917, but early 1918 as well. We will be covering the two revolutions of 1917 in March and November, along with the Summer Offensive and the exit from Russia through the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk in March 1918. This will take us to the end of Russia's World War I story, although fighting within the country would continue for quite some time afterwards. This also means that we probably will not be checking in again with the Russians, for at least the foreseeable future. But all this talk is getting ahead of ourselves. We start today at the beginning of 1917, at which point at least the Russian military leadership was still somewhat positive about what they thought they could accomplish in 1917. In reality, if the revolutions had not happened, there's a good chance that the Russians would have been a highly productive member of their alliance in 1917. They still had a lot of men, a problem that was becoming more and more critical for all of the other countries in Europe, and for many, this would be crippling by the end of the year, but not quite so much for Russia. They were producing and importing more military goods than they, had, than they ever had before. However, the grand hopes of the 1917 campaigning season would never come to fruition. The revolutions would see to that, after all. As I have done so many times, I will start this episode with a quote from G.J. Meyer from A World Undone. Quote, Like many of history's greatest upheavals, the end of the Romanovs was both a long time coming and shockingly sudden. End quote. So let's jump in and talk about what the situation in Russia was in early 1917. The Russian economy during the war is an interesting topic for discussion. Much like other economies around Europe during the war, the root of the problem in the Russian economy was not a decline, but instead a massive, unrestrained, unrelenting boom. The Russian government had always strictly adhered to the gold standard. The gold standard in its simplest form meant that all of the Russian money in circulation could be covered by the Russian government's gold reserves. This was seen as a safe but conservative way to manage an economy, but it did have the effect of suppressing the amount of money that the government could spend. However, with the country at war, it was time to unleash the government's pocketbooks, and the spending spending spree began. By 1917, Russia was spending almost $30 million per day on the war, which was more than France and Great Britain at the same point. This was done, first of all, by throwing the gold standard into the rubbish heap. However, the Russian government had to find a way to get more money, and the easiest way to do that was to borrow large amounts of money from the richest country in the world, at least at this point in time. Great Britain. There would be a lot of debate both inside the Russian government during the war and for historians after the war about whether or not Britain and its banks were taking advantage of the Russian situation. Now, they did offer large loans to Russia when them finding other sources of financing would have been a real challenge. However, these loans came with certain conditions. The first of which was that large stocks of Russian gold had to be brought to London as a kind of collateral. Really, they were holding it ransom. Second, all of the Russian purchasing had to be done through London, which put a lot of control in the hands of British politicians when it came to what, how much, and when the Russians could buy things. This is at a time when the British were also trying to buy vast amounts of goods from international markets, which meant there was a large conflict of interest. This meant that either the Russians paid too much and got it now, or they paid the going rate and maybe didn't receive it at all. The Russians did not really have a choice, though, since it was the only way for Russia to purchase the resources it needed. The Russian government did attempt to raise more money uh, domestically as well. This came in several different forms. They gathered money from the Russian public through war loan campaigns, much like other countries would do, and they also greatly altered taxation in the economy as well. Before the war, the levels of taxation were quite low in Russia, with a minority of the governmental incomes coming from direct or indirect taxation, just about one-fifth of total receipts, give or take a bit. Most of the rest of the money instead came from state-run monopolies on goods like spirits, with a lot of that being vodka, of course, it's Russia. This would change in 1916 when an income tax was introduced, but even this taxation and other increased taxes put only a small dent in the situation. Some estimates put these taxes as paying for only one week of the war in 1917, so one fifty-second of what was needed. All this money being spent by the Russians, especially that money going into the domestic economy, caused a massive boom, and also a large migration. Millions of young people moved into the cities to begin working in war industries, instead of staying out in the countryside. This was good for the factories, providing more and relatively cheap labor that they needed to work the shifts that were required. However, this migration also put greater strain on the urban societies. These were the roots of the problems that would come to a head in 1917.
2: Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. Every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story.
1: All of these measures, including the large-scale printing of new money, paid off for the Russians in the short term, since it allowed them to stay in the war, and pay people, and buy things. But of course, the one great truth of modern finance is that if you pump a lot of money into an economy, the inevitable result is inflation. By 1917, prices had risen 400%, a trend that would not slow but instead increase during 1917, with prices reaching 10 times their pre-war value by the time of the October Revolution. Real wages could not hope to keep pace with this rate of change, and the purchasing power of most Russians crashed down to what felt like nothing. It was in these money and inflation problems that one of the key pillars of the revolution was planted. When wages and money are meaningless, and the people feel like they have nothing, they begin to seek alternatives, something, anything other than the capitalism which was running the Russian economy, and which was also, apparently, letting them down. Of course, the real issues began when people tried to take their wages and turn them into something that everybody needs every day, food. Food. The issues with trying to make this transaction began on the supply side of the food equation. And on that side of the story, there were two different types of farmers with two different types of problems. On one hand, you have the large landowners. For them, the first problem was machinery. Their farms were relatively highly mechanized before the war, and they had done this through importing farm machinery. With imports highly curtailed by the war, and what domestic production was available detailed to other work, there was not much to go around. In 1913, over a 100 million rubles worth of machinery were purchased. In 1916, that number was just 13 million, but it was actually less than that due to inflation. This began to cause serious problems on these larger farms, as irreplaceable equipment could no longer be fixed due to lack of parts, but also could not be replaced. This lack of machinery was felt even more as larger and larger numbers of laborers, in the form of men, were drafted into the army. The second problem was one of fertilizer. Before the war, most of the fertilizer used on these larger farms had come from abroad, but now there was neither the shipping nor the foreign exchangeable money to purchase it. The fertilizer that was available domestically had to compete with all of the other demands for rail transport, making it a challenge to get it to the right places at a reasonable cost. These two problems resulted in a reduction in production in some of the most fertile areas of the country. For example, in the Stavropol region, they would be producing only about one-fifth of the grain in 1917 as they had in 1913. The other type of farmers in Russia were the peasant class, and unlike the larger landowners, the war was remarkably kind to them. Before the war, they had not had access to machinery or fertilizer, they couldn't afford it, so they barely noticed that it was gone. And even with the men taken from their ranks for the army, they were able to increase the amount of land under tillage by about a fifth, and they raised the number of animals even more. The cattle population was up 25%, and other animals like pigs and sheep had even larger numbers. That rise sounds great. It sounds fantastic, really, for everybody. But there was, of course, one small problem. The peasantry had a very different interaction with markets than the larger landowners, and this was true before and during the war. For the peasants, the problem was one of access. Except for the areas right around the cities, transportation was a big issue, and this meant that when a peasant wanted to sell grain, it would often have to go through several intermediaries before reaching the end of the line and the consumer. This meant that every time it changed hands, a little profit was taken off the top, for that person's trouble. And by the time that the money got back to the peasant, there was little left. It does not even really matter how, pri- how high prices were on the other end, or how badly the food was needed there. The peasants would always get the short end of the stick. This meant that after the massive inflation, the cost of goods was so far above the money that the peasant was making, that it seemed a bit pointless to sell much of anything. Why sell what you had worked so hard to create when, due to inflation, you can't buy anything with it anyway? The answer became to keep more of the grain for themselves. The first thing was to simply hoard, hide, and keep it, but they also used it to feed the animals. This was part of the reason that the number of animals jumped so much during the war. But then these animals, instead of being sold, because money was, once again, worthless, they would keep them and breed more. The result of all of this was that instead of about a quarter of the harvest finding its way to market, like it was before the war, only about 15% were sold in 1917. The amount of food on the market fell, even when the amount of food needed in the cities went up by a third. Even with all of these problems happening in food production, there may have been enough food to feed the people in the cities if the food could have gotten to them. Before the war, the railway network in all of Russia had been geared for one purpose, getting goods to ports for export to the international market. And for most of Russia, this meant moving it south to the Black Sea, where it could then be sent out through the Mediterranean. With the Ottoman entry into the war and the needs of the front, this meant that the Russian railways were not set up in the correct orientation, and of course, there were just simply not enough of them. The incredible increase in traffic during the first few years of wartime meant that they were, by 1917, falling apart. The rails and cars had not been in the best status before the war, and now they were just shot. But it should be noted that this was not a problem only for Russia during the war. By 1917, French railways and locomotives were also in a wretched state. However, in France, they never had real issues feeding the people in the cities. The Russians really did. The lack of ability to transport food was compounded by the problems of moving coal for fuel as well. And I don't know if you know this, but in Russia, the winters get pretty chilly. All of these factors created a situation in the cities where the entire environment was ripe for revolution. The cities of Russia would be the heart of the revolutions, and none more than Petrograd. In December 1916, it had about one-sixth as much food as it needed to have on hand, and in January 1917, it would only get about half of what it needed to replenish its stocks every day. With the deliveries of food and fuel to the cities like Petrograd so far under what was required, other dominoes began to fall. Factories also began to lay off some workers, since there was nothing for them to do due to lack of fuel. The cities really felt like they were under siege, being starved out by an enemy, and workers had to come together to try and scrape by a living. The traditional barriers between workers, like geography, class, skill levels, experience, even gender, began to break down. And while the various groups still disagreed on many details, they could certainly agree on a few things. Capitalism had failed, and the government that mandated it had also failed. The only conclusion was that there had to be another way. With the rise of starvation in the cities and the subsequent rise in disease and death, I can sympathize with their problems. It's easy to point to obvious targets for why the revolution happened, that it was the Soviets or the Bolsheviks, or that some groups or person or people somehow masterminded the revolution in a grab for power and influence. However, it's critical to keep in mind, as Russia descends into two revolutions and a civil war, that it did not begin with the actions planned by the Soviets, or from agitation by the Bolsheviks, or speeches from Lenin. No, the revolution started because countless people in Petrograd, and all over Russia for that matter, felt that they had nothing, and the current situation gave them no hope of getting more. Their families, their children, were starving to death around them. They looked out into the world, and they had nothing to lose, and nothing to gain by sticking with the status quo. They wanted change, and it didn't even truly matter what that change was. There was no risk and failure, because the only alternative to change was starvation and death.